Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Shreya Gupta, and in conversation today, we have Dr. Jeremy Davis. Dr. Jeremy Davis is a surgical oncologist and a principal investigator in the Center for Cancer Research at NCI NIH Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Davis originally hails from Florida. He completed his general surgery training at Indiana University, an additional three years of research training at the National Cancer Institute, followed by his advanced training of surgical oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He currently serves as the program director for the NIH-NCI Fellowship, as well as Surgeon-in-Chief of the NIH at Bethesda, Maryland. His clinical research focus is on gastric cancer, with particular attention to molecular underpinnings of carcinogenesis and peritoneal metastases. He's the principal investigator of multiple clinical trials being conducted here at NIH, including studies of patients with inherited forms of gastric cancer. We're so very happy to have you on board, Dr. Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So if you could, we just often like to start with kind of getting to know our guests and where they came from. So uh, where are you from? Um, How did you get into doing what you're doing? And how did you choose surgery and surgical oncology? Well, uh, I was born in Florida, in in Tampa, actually. and, And from an early age, I kind of was always attracted to medicine and surgery. Uh, But it wasn't until I was in uh, college in Tampa that I started to pursue this and and do what a lot of people do and uh, uh, observe or shadow other folks. I was lucky enough to have a cousin up in Michigan who uh, was a physician and and had me up there to, to observe or shadow one of his colleagues who was a pediatric surgeon. And I remember going into the OR and watched them do a open uh, repair of a pectus excavatum. And and it was really from that moment on that I was kind of bit by the bug. Um, so, you know, once I applied to medical school and got into medical school, I, I, I pretty much knew I wanted to be a surgeon. And so everything that I did kind of pointed me in that direction. Um, but, you know, it's kind of interesting. I thought I was going to be a pediatric surgeon for quite a while. And that's what led me to Indiana. Uh, Indiana University's got a great pediatric surgery fellowship, and and I thought I was going to be a pediatric surgeon, so I thought it was a perfect fit. And when I got there, I really liked pediatric surgery, but I started uh, some rotations as an intern in surgical oncology at the university hospital, and uh, it really uh, made me change directions uh, a bit and and think that surgical oncology was probably what I wanted to do and. You know, from then on, um, I, I really decided that I needed to, to get some more uh, background or, or information about what really a surgical oncologist would do. And that's what kind of led me on to the next steps in my journey that you highlighted in the introduction. So, Dr. Davis, how did you, how did you get to NIH? Yeah, so when I was a, uh, early on in the second year of my residency, you know, our chairman uh, uh, pretty much uh, uh, recommended or, or, or at least uh, 
the program uh, really wanted everyone to do at least one year of dedicated research. And so since I knew I wanted to do oncology, I was looking for places where I could get this experience uh, uh, in terms of surgical oncology research, but I knew I needed some structure. Um, I knew that that it was just my personality that uh, I needed to be somewhere where I was kind of held accountable. And there had been some folks in our program at Indiana who had been out to NIH and been a part of the Surgical Oncology Research Fellowship. And I spoke to them. It sounded like what I wanted uh, or needed. Uh, I applied and, and I was uh, lucky enough to be accepted. Uh, and that's, that's how I got there as a, as a research fellow after my second year of residency. Along that line, you know, whenever we talk about the NIH, we typically talk about research, um, but you guys have a surgical oncology program and you have a fellowship, uh, which does include research. But can you kind of talk about um, how it works at the NIH with regards to the clinical setting and, and how the fellowship works? Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of background. You know, the National Institutes of Health is 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 as much a... Um, a thing, a, a being, a, an organism than it is a, a, an actual place. Now, out here, um, the NIH campus uh, is in Bethesda, Maryland, and the NIH is made up of multiple institutes and centers, and the National Cancer Institute is the largest institute uh, within the NIH. And what's unique out here is that the NIH Clinical Center is essentially our hospital, and it's the world's largest hospital devoted exclusively to clinical investigation, and it really it serves as the research hospital for the NIH. Uh, since probably the early 1960s, uh, surgical trainees have served as research fellows at the NIH, uh, and just to give you an example of the kind of stuff that's happened here over the decades, you know, in 1960, the first successful mitral valve replacement was performed at the NIH Clinical Center. So since the 60s, uh, fellows have been coming out here, but the fellowship as we know it today established preeminence under Dr. Steven Rosenberg starting in the mid-1970s. And over the decades, many uh, surgery residents have come to NIH and done uh, some training and research during their uh during their residency or time off from their residency. And so many of them have gone on to, you know, careers as department chairs, division heads, and, and leaders in academic surgery. But the fellowship is generally two years. Um, some folks decide to say for an optional third year. The fellows spend six months on the clinical services. And during that time, they're taking care of our patients that are enrolled on clinical trials that are being conducted here at the NIH. And then after those six months, they spend at least 18 months or longer if they decide to engaged in basic laboratory research. So during that time, they're working with investigators, both within the National Cancer Institute, but across disciplines within the NIH. And it's hard to describe, but this place is very, very unique. And as you can imagine, as the uh, primary uh, sponsor uh, or, or supporter of medical research for the United States, um, this, this place is awe-inspiring. And I think that's what uh, really uh, inspires a lot of our, our folks to come out here and, and apply and, and then obviously spend time here. 
That sounds very impressive. So let's let's get into it. So we'll, we'll move right into our dissection of the day, which is where we delve a little bit more in depth about a particular topic. And so okay. I'm fortunate, fortunate enough to have you here. We you know wanted to focus on your work with gastric cancer. First off, how did you get involved, or what led you to gastric cancer uh, as being a focus? And two, can you kind of just frame what the overall problem or state of gastric cancer is, and, and what are some of the big things that you're working on? So those are uh, good questions because they all kind of relate. And, and you know, when I was a, a resident, uh, specifically a, a fourth and, and, and fifth year resident in general surgery, I took care of a few patients with gastric cancer. As you can imagine, or you probably already know, um, it's, it's not very common in the United States. And then when I entered fellowship, I took care of more patients with gastric cancer. And, and what I observed and what I learned was that although it is an uncommon cancer in the United States affecting only about 25,000 patients per year, uh, it's a really deadly cancer. Uh, the five-year survival overall is only about 30% in the United States. And the systemic therapies that we have are largely ineffective. Uh, surgery has been employed as the mainstay of treatment for gastric cancer for over 100 years. Uh, but really, uh, systemic chemotherapy is, is not uh, what we need it to be for our patients. So, you know, with all of that uh, as a background, uh, when I finished my fellowship in surgical oncology, I knew that I wanted to be engaged in, in some form of research, and, and I was really interested in and cancers of the uh, of the kind of the upper abdomen, so uh, the stomach, um, the esophagus, uh, and and hepatobiliary cancers. But when I had the opportunity to come back to the NIH, where I had done so much of my training, um, I had the opportunity really to establish uh, gastric cancer research at the NIH, where it really hadn't existed before. And because it was a cancer that really drew me for a lot of reasons, uh, and because I had this unique opportunity, uh, that's why I chose to study gastric cancer. In the frame of um, gastric cancer, can you talk about your work with CDH1? Uh, I would like to start off with what is CDH1 gene and what are the implications of uh, this mutation with regard to development of cancer and specifically gastric cancer? So I guess we can step back one second and, and, and tell folks that, you know, gastric cancer uh, for many years has been classified in two ways. And, and that was really based on how the cancer looked under the microscope. Um, and this classification really came up uh, back in the late 60s. And, and it was really based on did the cancer look uh, so-called uh, the intestinal type, uh, where it kind of mimicked intestinal type mucosa, or did it look diffuse type, meaning kind of scattered cells, kind of disorganized look. And it's this diffuse type cancer that people have noted for decades that seems to be particularly aggressive. Now, what's interesting is Back in the 90s, an investigator in the uh, or in New Zealand noticed that in a population of the New Zealand Maori population, uh, that there seemed to be a uh, inherited form of stomach cancer, and more importantly, it was always of this diffuse type when they looked under the microscope. And what they described in 1998 was that they uh, 
determined that this gene, CDH1, was mutated uh, in these families that were affected with this high uh, incidence of, of diffuse type stomach cancer. Now, CDH1 encodes a protein called E-cadherin. And E-cadherin is a protein that's really involved in, in cell-cell um, uh, communication structure, uh, keeps cells kind of in an orderly uh, uh, kind of uh, appearance. Um, and, and that was a very kind of, uh, you know, interesting finding back in the late 90s. And although since then people have recognized that if you have this CDH1 mutation that leads to a uh, an inherited form of diffuse type gastric cancer, we really haven't learned much more since then. So what that means is today, if somebody has a mutation that they inherit from uh, one of their parents in this CDH1 gene, we think that their lifetime risk of gastric cancer probably ranges anywhere from 56 to 70%. And for women, they also carry about a 42% lifetime risk of breast cancer, usually of the lobular type. So uh, people decided many, many years ago that the only way to prevent cancer in these patients was to perform a total gastrectomy and basically remove the entire stomach, all the gastric mucosa, and therefore uh, prevent gastric cancer from ever developing. What's interesting here is that if you look at patients with uh, sporadic uh, gastric cancer, or gastric cancer that just kind of arises for no particular reason other than the known risk factors like H. pylori uh, or smoking or certain dietary factors, there's a proportion of those patients with diffuse type gastric cancers that have a alteration in the same CDH1 gene. But again, it's only in the tumor. It wasn't inherited, so it's not in their so-called germline. So that's the, the basis of my research is trying to learn a little bit about both these inherited forms of gastric cancer caused by the CDH1 gene uh, and kind of paralleling that research with investigations of patients with sporadic type gastric cancers that also have this uh, CDH1 alteration uh, found in the tumor cells. Um, you know, the, the overarching work here, as with any kind of cancer research, is how can our understanding of this initial gene defect uh, tune us into what else is happening in the development and then the progression of cancer, namely metastasis? Uh, because as you know, patients die of metastatic cancer. They usually don't die of cancer in the local form. Um, and so that's really the basis of our research, much like it is for anybody who studies any other form of cancer. Follow up on this, um, you kind of briefly mentioned, you know, that there was a certain population where the CDH1 was discovered, and um, you've actually published on racial disparities of markers, including, you know, P53 and CDH1. Um, and so it's been well studied, um, like that there are racial disparities in cancers, especially um, from the diagnostic aspect, and then how people respond to chemotherapy. And specifically with gastric cancer, we know that there's a difference with Asian populations and um, Caucasians, um, that sort of thing. So um, I'm just curious as to, like, as you've been studying um, the CDH1 and these genes, um, 
do you see that this is going to affect our surgical management, like disparities that you see in these genes that are discovered? Or is it still in the state where it's more of a diagnostic and, and maybe the medical management that is affected? So I think that's a good question. And unfortunately, as much as we'd like to say that it's the former, it's, it's really the latter, meaning right now, these uh, findings are really um, interesting when it comes to diagnosis. Um, people have had a hard time translating any of these molecular alterations in cancers, whether it's in the her hereditary form or not, into real action. Now, one, one example where molecular alterations in gastric cancers has led to at least what many people believe is, is targeted therapy and, and, and hopefully effective targeted therapy are, are two main areas. And one is overexpression of HER2 in gastric cancers. Uh, and, and in patients whose tumors overexpress HER2, they're eligible to receive trastuzumab uh, along with systemic chemotherapy. Um, what I would say is is quite unfortunate is although this is really, you know, the best example in gastric cancer of a molecularly targeted therapy based on a unique uh, finding in a patient's tumor, the, the actual clinical benefit of adding such a targeted therapy um, in patients with gastric cancer is, is quite uh, small. Um, it, 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 the clinical uh, benefit, I, I would argue, is, 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 is measly at best. You know, we may talk at some point about immunotherapy, uh, but immunotherapy for gastric cancer has been tried. And in some patients with gastric cancer who um, whose tumors exhibit some changes, um, uh, such as microsatellite instability or some tumors that um, are, are uh, caused by Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, we think that immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors may be effective. But these, these kinds of, of of treatment changes based on our understanding at a molecular level of gastric cancer are really in their most infant stages. And as much as we'd like to tell our patients that we've, you know, hit the 21st century with the ground, you know, uh, uh, hit the ground running and we're somehow uh, uh, able to uh, sequence their tumors and target their tumors with a better chemotherapy, we're just not there yet, at least not in, in stomach cancer. Um, and with regard to CDH1, you know, I think our understanding of, of that unique population of patients that, are, that inherit this gene mutation, we're going to find that that gene mutation is just, just the beginning. It, it, just that alone is not what leads to stomach cancer. There are clearly going to be other things that need to happen, other steps, other, other um, alterations that need to take place. And I think with that, that's going to enlighten us and help us understand gastric cancer in general. So, Dr. Davis, we have a. I kind of wanted to take one step back, real quick. We have a, you know a lot of residents that listen to this program, um, and I think uh, most residents out there, surgical residents, uh, general surgery residents, uh, when they think about gastric cancer and CDH1, they know that there's an association because it's a question on the ab side every year is, is which of these genes is associated with gastric cancer. Aside from that, they don't really think they understand, they know a whole lot about it. So if you could, you know, what is the more kind of clinical aspect of the CDH1? What does it mean yeah. as far as who needs to get tested for it? 
What does it mean for far as screening? What does it mean with regards to the development of uh, other other types of cancer? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. So there are a set of guidelines that have been established for patients with um, specific either personal or family histories that suggest that they may have this cancer syndrome. So just like on the ab site, you know, people get asked questions about Lynch syndrome or or other inherited cancer syndromes. Um, in patients who may come to your clinic or who, who you may see uh, on one of your rotations, if if they have a personal history, for instance, of lobular breast cancer at a young age, you know, that's that's the first bell that may go off. And when you start to ask people their personal or family history, what you need to then find out from those patients is whether or not there's a history of gastric cancer in the family. More, more importantly, that history of gastric cancer should be narrowed down to specifically diffuse type gastric cancer. And this is often hard because most people don't have that specific information. The other thing that's not really well known, but it should raise eyebrows, is a family history of cleft lip or palate. So I would say that from a clinical perspective, if, if residents know that if, if a patient has a, a history, personal history or family history of lobular breast cancer uh, and or uh, diffuse type gastric cancers, and then if you throw in this kind of rare or, or more uh, unique finding of cleft lip or palate, those are the kinds of patients that would start raising your eyebrows about whether or not you should uh, be tested for the CDH1 gene mutation. Now, beyond that, what, what's really interesting is that if you take one of these patients with CDH1 mutation to the operating room for a so-called risk-reducing gastrectomy, which, by the way, is recommended for anyone with the, a pathogenic CDH1 mutation over the age of 20, if you take that patient to the operating room and remove their stomach, what you're likely to find on pathology are clusters of signet ring cancer cells lying within the lamina propria of the stomach. And what's interesting is that these cells are probably just sitting there. They're, they're dormant or quiescent. They've not yet decided to start to, to grow and invade. And from a, from a therapeutic perspective, I think it's important for the residents to know this as well, because we believe these uh, cancer cells are sitting in the stomach when we do take out their stomach for, for so-called prophylactic reasons. Um, but you know what that means long term, uh, we're not exactly sure, but we think the patients that have their stomachs out are essentially uh, cured of their risk of, of ever developing stomach cancer. What the resident should also know is that if the patient is a female, her risk of gas, uh, breast cancer being about 40% lifetime risk is about as high as it is for a BRCA mutation. So things like prophylactic bilateral mastectomy should be at least thought of or discussed, although it's not necessarily uh, mentioned uh, very strongly in the current international guidelines. It's something that uh, is important to remember, at least clinically, whether or not it um, uh, comes up, uh, you know, on something like <laughs> like the ab site. Dr. Davis, you mentioned immunotherapy uh, very briefly uh, a few minutes ago. Um, for our res residents, again, would you mind kind of commenting um, on immunotherapy and other adoptive cell therapy um, uh, 
in the current state uh, it's in right now? And how do you see that kind of changing the way we take care of our cancer patients and the role that surgeons will be playing in the future? You know, so that's a that's a great question because, as you know, here at the NIH, you know, uh, immunotherapy for cancer was really uh, championed and pioneered over the last four plus decades by Dr. Rosenberg, and in many ways, immunotherapy is now kind of the, you know, the popular kid in class, and it's really exciting because immunotherapy has the ability, we think, to cure. A variety of cancers that we never thought immunotherapy could ever cure before. And just to give you an example, not that long ago when I was a fellow uh, at the NIH, a lot of people thought that immunotherapy was only good for melanoma. And, and as you can see nowadays, immunotherapy is uh, being used for a wide variety of cancers, including gastric cancer. But I think immunotherapy, you know, will continue uh, to work for a proportion of cancers, but it'll work for some of them and not all of them. And, and as we've learned in the past, we, we've got to uh, temper our optimism with uh, realism and know that immunotherapy is going to be a part of a larger armamentarium needed to control cancers. But with that said, in a variety of cancers, again, including uh, gastric cancer, I think surgeons and their involvement in immunotherapy and immunotherapy research is critical. Clearly, surgeons have been the champions, at least here at the NIH, you know, for over 40 years. And I think a lot of surgeons and surgical oncologists out there are still uh, leading the way in terms of immunotherapy. And I think part of that has to do with our ability to uh, have kind of a unique insight into the understanding of patients' disease and their disease process. Um, with regard to immunotherapy, a lot of people right now think of checkpoint inhibitors like the uh, anti-PD-1 or PDL one antibodies. But remember, there are other uh, forms of checkpoint inhibitors out there. And more importantly, there are other forms of immunotherapy out there. And, and you mentioned one of them, and that's adoptive cell transfer. And that's really the transfer most often of a patient's own uh, immune cells or lymphocytes, whether or not they've been obtained from a tumor and their so-called tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, or they've been genetically modified, which is something that's very common here um, at the NIH. But all of those things uh, are in many ways still investigational for a lot of cancers out there. And I think it's a unique time and an exciting time for surgeons in particular who want to engage in this kind of research. Um, but I think surgeons, you know, for the sake of research in general, not just immunotherapy, are really critical because of our unique uh, insight into the spectrum uh, of disease. Can you talk briefly about other, you know, maybe some other adjuncts out there other than immunotherapy? Like currently, for instance, what's the role of uh, current role of HIPEC uh, for gastric cancer? Yeah, so for gastric cancer, uh, and and just to set the stage, you know, the the primary treatment of gastric cancer right now is a, a combination of chemotherapy and surgery, and in some cases, uh, radiation, you know, so-called multimodality therapy. But as we all know, the, the patients that we most often see that are ever cured of any solid tumor have had surgery. And for that reason, uh, HIPEC and, and, and more specifically cytoreductive surgery with HIPEC has been uh, 
thought of as, as potentially useful in stomach cancer. As you know, uh, cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC are used to treat a variety of solid tumors, including ovarian cancer, uh, peritoneal mesothelioma, appendiceal cancers, and some colon cancers. The problem in gastric cancer is that so many patients will develop peritoneal metastasis during the course of their disease. And a lot of these patients won't develop metastases anywhere else, uh, meaning they won't develop it in their liver, their lungs, or their bones. It'll primarily be in the peritoneal cavity. So it seems to make sense that cytoreduction and HIPEC would, would, would work maybe in some of these patients. I, I believe it's a, an unanswered question, and it is controversial in that it has been studied in gastric cancer. However, most of those studies are out of Asia. And as was mentioned earlier, we think that there are some you know, critical differences in why Asian patients seem to fare differently than North American patients uh, with gastric cancer. In the United States, only a few uh, centers are actually studying HIPEC for gastric cancer. And I would say that if we think that this strategy might be useful in stomach cancer, the best way to go about determining this is with a prospective controlled trial. My concern is, is that cytoreduction and HIPEC, if they can be applied to other tumors, many people will treat cytoreduction and HIPEC like a, like a tool in their toolbox and apply it to, to any other cancer. And, and I think that's a, that's a, flawed way of thinking, and, and, and we have to be honest with ourselves about how poorly patients with gastric cancer and peritoneal uh, metastasis fare, and whether or not putting them through a large operation, such as cytoreduction and HIPEC, will actually benefit them. And, and again, the one way to learn that is through clinical trials, and there are some going on in the United States. There are many people that are talking about planning uh, multi-institutional studies, so I think it's also a critical area of research. But I also think that the clinical research in this area has to go hand in hand with the basic science research. This is going to sound a little naive, but um, when we're you've done um, T cell engineering or lymphocyte engineering um, as a is that considered part of immunotherapy? And then following that question, um, the hot topic, you know, it has been cell engineering, genetic engineering. Um, and like gene therapy and trying to get a cancer vaccine, a so-called cancer vaccine, whether it's using exosomes or whatever it is, do you see that as kind of the next big thing for gastric cancer or is it um, something else? What do you think is coming down the line? So those are good questions. So, so your first one about uh, genetic engineering, uh, when I was in the laboratory, we were trying to create T cells that didn't exist naturally um, uh, that would target um, a patient's tumor. So uh, the idea being that you take their cells uh, from their blood, uh, you take the T cells specifically and insert a specific T cell receptor um, that will target a cancer uh, antigen or, or, or a protein that sits on the surface of a cancer cell. And I think uh, in many ways, that's where a lot of people think we should be heading, at least in terms of immunotherapy that is really designed for a particular patient or their tumor. It's the ultimate uh, in precision medicine. We're not there yet, obviously. There's still a lot of work to be done. Certainly in stomach cancer, we've had a lot of conversations here at the NIH about 
the benefit of that kind of genetically modified T cells in stomach cancer. Um, we've certainly tried adoptive cell transfer um, uh, in patients with stomach cancer uh, with, uh, with no uh, great success yet, but some, some hints that it, that it uh, could be possible. Um, but with that said, what's on the horizon for stomach cancer? Well, you know, stomach cancer, because it's rare in the United States and not well studied, I think in many ways we're behind uh, where we are in many other cancers. Because if you have a common cancer like lung cancer or colon cancer or breast cancer, you've had, you have more opportunities to, to study those cancers because you just have more of those patients around. So I think in stomach cancer, we have to learn a little bit more about how these cancers develop and what are the critical changes that are taking place at the molecular level so that then we can identify these targets for immunotherapy or um, uh, targeted drug therapy. Um, because like I mentioned before, right now, um, targeted therapy or drug therapy for, for gastric cancer is pretty limited. And again, we're, we're really in the earliest of stages for any kind of adoptive cell uh, transfer or, or gene therapy uh, for stomach cancer. But I think we can get there. It's just uh, we're dealing with very few patients per year that, that provide us such a unique opportunity uh, to study this disease. That was a, a great summary and uh, what's coming up next. Uh, with that, I would like to segue to our next segment, which, call, which is called Tips and Tricks. Um, the topic that we chose for this seg segment for you, Dr. Davis, is being a surgeon scientist. Um, it seems that it is a rare entity these days. And uh, as someone who is a successful surgeon scientist like you, uh, why do you think that is? And uh, what advice do you think that young aspiring surgeons, um, you, you know, need to heed um, who also want to make a, a career as a surgeon scientist? Well, I, I think uh, you, you mentioned, um, you know, why do I think, uh, you know, becoming a surgeon scientist is, is, is maybe difficult or not common. I, I think Surgeon, surgeons and the, and the surgery training paradigm right now uh, is not conducive to developing surgeons to become investigators. I, I think it's clear that becoming a surgeon is hard work, but becoming a surgeon and an investigator is, is doubly hard. And, and the way that we train people right now, I personally don't think is, is the best. Um, and, and there are a lot of people out there who I think believe the same thing, meaning you, you oftentimes do two or three years of your residency, and then you take a year or two off to do research. Then you go back and you finish your residency. You oftentimes go and do fellowship. And by the time you get a job and you think you want to do research, the last time you did it was, you know, four or five, four or five years prior to that uh, uh, interview for a job. So I, I think we have to take a look at how we're training folks and whether or not we're training folks who want to go on that track in the way that they need to be trained. I think the other part of it is we, we as a profession have to value the surgeon scientist or the surgical investigator. Uh, I think we have to recognize that we all have different roles to play. Some of us are good educators. Some of us are good scientists. Some of us are, are good clinicians. Some of us can be good at a couple of those things. But but again, without changing the way we think about our training, 
Um, we're not going to get more people to want to engage in any kind of investigation or, or research, whether it's clinical, uh, translational, or basic science research. So, you know, for that reason, if I was going to give advice uh, to any aspiring surgical oncologist, it would be similar to what I would tell almost any surgeon, uh, because I, I, I think some of the lessons are the same. And the first is what I was always told as an intern, and that's read, and read, and read, and read. And I think it sounds silly or maybe even too simple, but I think, you know, nowadays we get so caught up, you know, whether it's being a resident or having a family and doing all the things that you've got to do uh, or want to do. But one of the things that we can do to make ourselves better, not just, you know, uh, in, in, our, in our personal or professional lives, but to make ourselves better when we interact with our patients is, is to read. The more you read, obviously, the more you know. And I think the second is to realize that, that uh, to be a good doctor and to be a competent surgeon of any kind is hard work and, and it's truly a calling. And, and we're doing this because we're, 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 we want to be here, not because uh, there's some you know, pot, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And the last part is if you're not passionate about what you do, you're probably going to be unhappy. And if you're not passionate about what you do, you're also likely not going to be the best you can be. And, and, and surgical oncology is, is much like any area of surgery, that it's more than just operating. It's about understanding the disease that you're taking care of. And, you know, if you want to be a surgical oncologist, then read about surgical oncology, but realize you still are aspiring to be a good doctor and a good surgeon for your patients. And in surgical oncology, I would say you have to remember that in this in this particular field, especially, um, somebody once told me that cancer care is disease based, not discipline based. So when you go into surgical oncology, you have to sometimes take off your surgeon cap and put on your oncologist cap and remember that to take care of patients with cancer is to understand the entirety of the disease. And I think if that kind of thing inspires you, then it will probably also inspire you to decide whether or not some sort of research, whether it's clinical, translational, or, translational or basic science, is, is for you. I guess uh, I like what you said there. Um, I, I guess maybe some of that advice was uh, targeted towards programs and program directors out there. Does there need to be do we need to start earlier? It never really made sense to me to kind of shuttle all of our residents through one year of research, whether they're interested in research or not. Does there need to be different tracks starting at the beginning of residency for the person that's interested in being a surgeon scientist? Does that need to be a different track starting at the intern level? You know, I, I think it's reasonable to consider that. I, I think right now we we have people in medical school that are coming out and 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 we have these combined residencies for vascular, combined residencies for plastics. There's probably going to be a combined residency for surgical oncology sometime in the future. And I think that's probably a tough thing for people to come out of medical school and figure out that that, you know, that that's what they want to do. But let's say you don't have that and you enter your internship and you're kind of, you know, undifferentiated. I do think that the program has some responsibility to to try to sit down with their residents and ask them, you know, what it is that inspires them. What is it about surgery that they're passionate about? 
And, you know, to take a year or two off to do research that's somehow mandated for somebody who, let's say, is interested in outcomes or um, health services or, or, or basic science, they're all going to need to go in different directions. And there probably can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, because, like I said, you could probably take time off in, re in, in residency and do health services research or outcomes research. But I think if you want to be a scientist, taking time off in the middle of residency may not be the optimal time. It, it, you may need to take that time off later in residency or even in fellowship. Um, so I, I think it's worth looking at. And I'm sure there are people at uh, the American College of Surgeons and in the Society of Surgical Oncology that have been having these discussions already. Um, but as you know, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, change hearts and, and, and minds in, in, a, in a profession that's as old and, and uh, steeped in history as, as, as surgery is. And along those same lines, there's been that debate about whether um, research, even talking about um, uh, clinical residents who don't take time off to do research, having the requirement that they need to do a research project, whether that's necessary if they have no interest in um, being a surgeon scientist or doing even clinical outcomes research, which is a whole other debate. Um, but with that said, I think there's also this idea that getting out publications is very important, especially in academia. And um, residents who go to the lab, um, a lot of times it's for the fellowship position. And um, so, you know, the whole goal in this one or two year time frame that they're in the lab is to um, spit out publications. And I feel like sometimes that is to the detriment of learning to be a surgeon scientist and actually really um, investing yourself in that. And so I was kind of curious what your thoughts are on that and kind of what advice do you have to those of us who are currently in the lab or going into the lab um, during that time off between residency? You know, I, I think you raised some good points. Um, certainly, I think from the perspective of training folks to be general surgeons. So if we're just talking about general surgery residency and let's say, you know, a requirement to have some sort of research project, I think you have to keep in mind that to be a, any kind of doctor, whether it's a pediatrician, internist, or surgeon, in order to take care of your patients, you have to be a lifelong learner. You know, what you learn when you graduate medical school, uh, a lot of those things are going to change and change radically over the course of your uh, uh, time as a practitioner. So you have to be able to go out there and learn and read and understand the literature. So sometimes the act of going through a research project and learning what it takes to do research, again, whether it's clinical or not, I think is important in helping you learn how to understand uh, the literature, you know, down the road. With regards to, you know, doing research for the sake of doing research versus doing research to somehow pad your CV so that you can get into fellowship, I think, again, we have to kind of be honest with ourselves and, and, and in general, look at academia and, and, and when, when surgeons who are in practice need to publish in order to advance uh, within their department to go from assi uh, assistant to associate to full professor and, and to, to really judge the quality of folks' research and whether or not we're really changing uh, you know, the, the way that uh, we manage our patients or, or what are we contributing to, to, you know, the science. 
I, I think there's a lot of debate out there already about that. Um, but I think if you are spending time in the lab or, or spending time outside of residency to do research, you do have to be honest with yourself that a lot of uh, um, competitive fellowships are going to be looking at the number of publications you have. But I also believe that most uh, fellowship programs worth their salt are not going to look purely at the numbers of publications, but they're going to look at the quality of the time that you spent. If you did publish, what did you publish? How meaningful was it? Um, you know, was it a case report versus was it, you know, really some research that that you initiated and completed in a rigorous manner? So I think there's value, but I think you can easily, uh, you know, blur the lines between a valuable research experience and an experience that's done um, purely to, uh, you know, get numbers uh, on your CV or to, frankly, uh, increase the number of publications for uh, whomever you're working for. Um, because remember, when you're writing papers as a as a resident, uh, you're helping your attending. You know, you're you're not just helping yourself. The attending is benefiting also. So I, I think this is a really deep and complicated subject, and a lot of people have very strong feelings about the utility of a lot of this. But I think rather than shying away from it, surgeons need to embrace the fact that we uh, provide legitimacy to a lot of areas of medical research and we need to be engaged and we need to be involved, but hopefully we're involved and engaged for the right reasons and we're doing it in a way that uh, is really meaningful or, and valuable for our profession. Thank you, that's, <clears throat> that's excellent and very solid advice um, and appreciated. With that, I think we'll transition, we call our final five. Uh, so this is how we try to like to wrap up uh, a lot of our interviews is with five fun, kind of easy questions. Uh, so number one, the first question is, uh, what's kind of music you listen to? What's on your iPod? And do you listen to that music in the operating room? So, you know, I, I think iPods are a little old now, don't you think? Um, uh, I probably now in the OR, we have an Echo Dot. So uh, we just ask Alexa to play, <laughs> to play um, whatever we want. Let's see, um, if I'm operating, I recently I've been listening to some country music. Um, but I like kind of uh, some classic rock as well. Um, and then usually when I leave the operating room, uh, I let the I let the fellows ask Alexa to play whatever they want. Wow. So NIH is at the cutting edge of everything. We don't we there don't have a hospital yet. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. <laughs> All right. Our next question is, uh, do you have a favorite movie or a genre of movie? Oh, well, that's easy. My favorite movie of all times is Indiana Jones. Uh, um, I love those movies. I've watched them so many times. I can probably repeat all of the dialogue. So um, so another question for you. Is there someone that you can think of who is not in medicine who has had an influence on your life or your career? Oh, yeah. So um, so not in medicine. Uh, I would say I had a, a history professor in college. Um, I, I like history, um, and I took a lot of history classes as an undergrad, and in particular, I had one professor um, who really, I don't know, just uh, changed the trajectory of my life in some ways um, uh, and uh, introduced me to friends that I'm, I'm still friends with, you know, 
20 plus years later, um, introduced me to the love of travel. Um, yeah. And I'm still in touch with him today. Okay. Number four. Um, uh, and based on that answer, you might actually get a bonus question that we ask other people, but we're not, we don't currently have on the list to ask you, but number four, uh, what would you be doing? So if you didn't go into medicine at all, you didn't go into surgery, you didn't go to med school, what would you be doing? Hmm. You know, I, I thought that I might want to be a teacher. Uh, I'm not sure why. Um, I, I never really enjoyed public speaking. Um, but, I, but I think there's some overlap with being a surgeon and being an academia and being a teacher. But I, I thought if I couldn't do this, I, maybe I'd be a high school teacher or a college teacher. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 that's probably where I'd be. Okay. I have to ask question 4.5 then. You get the bonus question. So you mentioned your love of travel. So what's been your favorite place that you've traveled, your favorite trip? Um, you know, well, my, my most memorable trip was when I was in, in college and, and I went backpacking through Europe for a month with, with my friend. Um, that, that was probably the most memorable, although that same friend of mine who we backpacked through Europe uh, 20 years ago, he just got married in Botswana. So I traveled to Botswana a few months, a few months ago. That was, I never thought I'd go to that country ever. And, and there I was. So that was pretty cool. So our last question for you right now, if we were to grab your white coat, what would we find either in the pockets or on the lapel or wherever on your white coat? What would we find? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm looking at my white coat right now because I'm in my office and uh, on the lapel, some makeup, because on Friday in clinic, one of my patients, her, his daughter hugged me and uh, she got some makeup on my lapel. Um, otherwise, uh, in my coat is, is a pen uh, and uh, the pockets are completely empty. And you know why I'm, I'm smiling as I say that, because that just shows you the, the change from intern to chief. Uh, to fellow, to attending. Those pockets go from being really heavy and weighed down with a lot of things to being uh, rather, rather empty. <laughs> awesome. I hope to get there someday. Uh, Absolutely. Dr. This was amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for our podcast and giving us some uh, wonderful piece of information on research, on being a surgeon scientist, and your work with gastric cancer. We uh, we appreciate you, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And for our listeners who want to follow Dr. Jeremy Davis, he is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Jeremy L. Davis, MD. So go follow. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.